Here we are in chapter 13, and I need to warn you, the events in tonight's Bible reading are absolutely horrible. This is one of the worst chapters in the Bible, in my opinion, but it's in the Bible, and so we're going to read it. I'm going to invite Gibson up to read God's word for us, and I'm going to lead us in prayer as he comes up. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that all Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Open our hearts to receive your word so that we may know you better and be thoroughly equipped for every good work through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thanks, Gib. Um, so as James said, our uh, Bible reading from 2 Samuel 13. Um, you've probably all got it open by now, um, so I'll get started. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shemaiah, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, Why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I may eat from her hand. David sent the word to Tamar at the palace. Go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food here into my bedroom so I may eat it from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him, Don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, Get up and get out. No, she said to him. Sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, Get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. 
So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing an ornate robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornate robe she was wearing. She put her hands on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He was your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard all this, he was furious, and Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Two years later, when Absalom's sheep shearers were at Baal Hazor, near the border of Ephraim, he invited all the king's sons to come there. Absalom went to the king and said, Your servant has had shearers come. Will the king and his attendants please join me? No, my son, the king replied. All of us should not go. We would only be a burden to you. Although Absalom urged him, he still refused to go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon come with us. The king asked, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he sent him, sent him with Amnon and the rest of the king's sons. Absalom ordered his men, Listen, when Amnon is high in spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Haven't I given you this order? Be strong and brave. So Absalom's men did to, what, did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. Then all the king's sons got up, mounted their mules and fled. While they were on their way, the report came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons. Not one of them is left. The king stood, stood up, tore his clothes and lay down on the ground, and all his attendants stood by with their clothes torn. But Jonadab, son of Shemaiah, David's brother, said, My lord should not think that they killed all the princes, only Amnon is dead. This has been Absalom's express intention ever since the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. My lord, the king, should not, be concern, should, not, should not be concerned about the report that all the king's sons are dead, only Amnon is dead. Meanwhile, Absalom had fled. Now the man standing watch looked up and saw many people on the roof west of him uh, coming down the side of the hill. The watchman went and told the king, I see men in the direction of Horonaim on the side of the hill. Jonadab said to the king, See, the king's sons have come. It has happened just as your servant said. As he finished speaking, the king's sons came in, wailing loudly. The king too and all his attendants wept very bitterly. Absalom fled and went to Talmai, son of Amahud, the king of Geshur. But King David mourned many days for his son. After Absalom fled and went to Geshur, he stayed there three years, and King David longed to go to Absalom, for he was consoled concerning Amnon's death.
Well, friends, please keep your Bibles open. Uh, apologies if my voice goes out and I have to have a sip of a warm drink. Um, we ought to pray as we come to this passage. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, please speak to us uh, even by this confronting part of your word. We know that you are good and that you speak to us and please help us to see as you see so that we might learn from you this day. Amen. Well, take a moment, friends, um, turn to the person next to you uh, and share something about your parents which you see in yourself which you're either thankful for or which you wish you could change. Maybe it's Father's Day, so maybe you want to share something you're thankful for, but have a chat to the person next to you. Um, share something in yourself which you see uh, from your parents. Have a quick chat. We've not got the slides. James, do you need it? James, do you need a USB? Well, what did you say? What did you say? Hopefully there's a few things that you see in yourself from your parents that you're thankful for, but I'm sure there's things that you see that you wish you could change, isn't there? Inevitably, our parents, our family of origin, what life was growing up like growing up, is going to have some bearing on who we are and what we're like, whether for better or for worse, isn't it? When my wife Annie and I were preparing uh, to get married, we knew that cultural differences in our family backgrounds would have some bearing on the way that we relate to each other, and especially the way that we deal with conflict and what conflict looks like in our marriage. I don't think we really experienced how much it affected us until we had our son Ezra, and it's not his fault, um, but certainly children put that kind of pressure uh, on your marriage, uh, and we certainly didn't realise um, how much it would be before we got married I can see as well how both Annie and myself having parents who've separated um, affects our views of marriage and relationships and fidelity. Um, but for us, it's, it's as we desperately don't want to follow down the same road uh, as our parents. But the way we end up is not inevitable. Neither Annie nor I grew up in Christian homes, and yet by God's kindness and grace, he's saved both of us. He's changed us. And so we don't just reflect the values and lives of our parents. As we head back into 2 Samuel in this later part of the year at church, friends, we're going to start to see the undoing of David's kingdom and family, King David. We'll see the tragedy of the sins of the father, David, setting the pattern for the behavior and relationships in the royal family. We're going to see that the sins of the father are just like the sins of the sons. 
You should have an outline on the back of your handout if you want to follow along. One of the major themes as well in the stories of David in this part of 2 Samuel and his family is precisely the unavoidable link between public life and private life of a ruling family. See, friends, what occurs in David and in his family sets the trajectory for the people of God. Where we are now is meant to be this high point in Israel's history with their king, David. And yet already we're going to see that sin is making its ugly mark and beginning to undo some of God's blessings upon his people. But we'll also see that these chapters as we go through our series are not completely devoid of hope. God promises to keep his word to David to establish his kingdom. And with his son Solomon already having been introduced at the end of our last series in chapter 12, it's clear that whatever happens in these chapters, whatever is accomplished, a central element is also the succession to the throne and the continuation of David's kingship according to God's promises, even if we see that it's already marred by human failings. So we're going to get stuck into our, uh, to our talk today, um, which I've called Like Father, Like Son. We're going to first talk about the sins of the Father. And in order to do that today, we're going to have a look back at chapter 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel, which we looked at in our previous series, to understand better the sins of the Father, King David. So feel free to flip back to chapter 11 in your Bibles if you like, or just follow along on the dot points on the screen. Chapter 11, verse 1, we see that something's already off. See, David, it tells us, stayed in Jerusalem at the time when kings ought to go off to war. We'll see later today that David is asleep at the wheel, both as his role as a king and in his role as a father. He's asleep on the battlefield, and we'll see that he's asleep at home. And so since David isn't busy away doing his job, instead he seems bored and he longs for pleasure and satisfaction. So one evening, David gets up from his bed and he walks around on the roof of the palace aimlessly. He spots a woman, Uriah's wife Bathsheba, and she's bathing. And so he takes her and he sleeps with her and then he sends her back home. And then David covers up his sin by getting his commander Joab to orchestrate the killing of Bathsheba's husband Uriah by sending him on a suicide mission on the battlefield. David doesn't even do the dirty deed himself, but he's fully responsible. After that, we see that David indicts himself before the prophet Nathan. See, the prophet Nathan comes and he tells him a parable, and then he asks David what should happen at the end. And here's what David says. Chapter 12, verse 5 and 6. As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then David said to Nathan, you are the man. This then is the consequence of David's sin. David will pay four times over and even more for his sin. And so the prophet Nathan then prophesies, chapter 12, verse 10, Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. 
This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity or evil upon you. And so the following chapters from chapter 13 onwards that we're looking at today are the fulfillment of this interaction with the prophet Nathan. David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And while David did not die for his sin, towards the end of chapter 12, the child that Bathsheba bore him does. And so we move from the sins of the father to the sins of the sons. The tragedy continues. Chapters 13 to 20 show the evil from, our, from your house that Nathan announced to David. And it centers around the rebellion of his son, Absalom. It's worth remembering his name. As we look at chapter 13 today, of all the sad stories in the historical books in the Bible, this is one of the saddest. Of the stories about outrageous violence against women, this is one of the most outrageous. But this account demonstrates for us tonight at least two truths. First, that God's prophetic word is true. And second, that the sins of one generation imprint the next generation. Each sin not only fosters more sin, but it also fashions it by providing a precedent for those to follow. Like father, like son. And so we first look at David's son, Amnon. This chapter continues the tragic chain of sin that began in chapter 11 with David. As David's firstborn son and heir to the throne, Amnon commits an incestuous rape. The parallels between the king's sin and that of his son Amnon, they're numerous. They both committed immoral acts outside of marriage with beautiful women in the privacy of their own residences. Both women experienced great grief because of the men's actions. And ultimately, both transgressions brought about death for sons of David. And there are still further echoes here in chapter 13 of earlier accounts in the Bible of sexual abuse. See, this story shares language with Shechem's rape of Dina in Genesis 34 of Potiphar's wife's attempt to force herself in jo on Joseph in Genesis 39. And even the Levites violated concubine in Judges 19, the language it picks up on from all of these accounts. But this tragic account now places a thing that should not happen in Israel in the very family who ought to prevent it happening. While the first verse, if you have a look, it mentions the word love. Nothing in this story goes as might be expected in a love story. See, we see Tamar, she's caught between powerful men. We have the cousin who plots how to lure her, Am, uh, sorry, uh, Jonadab, the cousin who plots how to lure her to Amnon's side. David, her father, who acts as her procurer her brother who rapes her, and another brother who appears to then silence her. Tamar is a young woman who visits a friend, a relative, with a plate full of food because he's not feeling well. And then she gets violated for her efforts 
and thrown off the premises because her rapist loads her more than he ever first lusted for her. See, this is an account of both rape and incest. The brother-sister relationship between Tamar and Amnon is referred to a dozen times in this passage. And the deceit involved makes it quite clear that both young men knew that what they were plotting was wrong. This was no spur-of-the-moment offence. This was a deliberate and well-planned assault on a defenceless woman. There was no consideration at all in their minds as to what the effect of their plan might have on Tamar. That was irrelevant. Amnon was following in his father David's footsteps. He lusted, and so he took. The repercussions of David's sin go on and on. Just like in many Middle Eastern cultures today, it's likely that it would normally have been unthinkable for Tamar to be allowed to visit Amnon in his personal quarters. However, Jonadab, their cousin, rightly predicted that David could be persuaded to make an exception. Verse 6, Amnon lies about being sick and requests that his sister makes him some kind of dumpling soup. It's probably a better translation than uh, baked bread. Um, for his illness, and it makes a bit more sense as well. And in verse 7, David is then implicated in the plot, and he sends in his daughter to her abuser. Eventually, we see by verse 11, they're alone in the room together, and Amnon grabs hold of Tamar and demands that she sleep with him. Tamar resisted, both verbally and physically. Her first word in response to her half-brother's sinful request, was no. In fact, Tamar said no at least three, if not four, times. There is no doubt at all that she was unwilling. This offence was against her as well as against the law. Like his father David, Amnon is abusing his power to satisfy his lusts. Intercourse between a brother and sister and even a half-brother and half-sister was explicitly forbidden in Leviticus 18.9 in the law. And so this rape was a wicked thing, verse 12, which should not be done in Israel. Tamar's use of these particular phrases, they allude to the account of Shechem's rape of Dina in Genesis 34. So this forced Amnon to put in his mind at least momentarily the, back into the law and to consider the end result of not just Shechem's, but also his own actions, which in both cases we find is death. But Tamnar, sorry, Am, sorry, but Amnon does not respect Tamar's repeated no, nor does he heed Tamar's wise warnings about God's law. Like father, like son, Amnon takes what he wants with no regard for his victim or for God's law. Now, after the rape in verse 15, Amnon's great love of Tamar turns suddenly into an intense hatred, more than he ever loved her. Clearly, we see that the love that he supposedly felt at the beginning was not love at all, but pure lust. Amnon wanted the virgin Tamar not the defiled woman that he had now made her. Cruelly, 
he commands her to get up and get out. See, this hatred and contempt was surely it's a supreme example of a blame the victim mentality. He calls her this woman where before she had been my sister. It reminds us of David back in chapter 11. Even after we know Bathsheba's name and after David has slept with her and she's sent back home, she's still referred to as the woman. Just as his father had taken advantage of a woman and then used his power to command someone else to then implement his cruelty, so Amnon now calls his personal servant in verses 17 and 18 and commands Tamar's ejection from his quarters like a prostitute. Tamar is thrown out. And verse 19 publicly reveals her grief and defilement. See, putting ashes on the head, tearing of one's clothes, covering the head with a hand or a garment. These were all expressions of grief and humiliation. And so before long, unsurprisingly, David hears, and in verse 21, is angry. But he appears to do nothing for either Tamar or to Amnon. Neither as king nor as a parent did he take any action to punish Amnon or to alleviate Tamar's situation. David became furious, but that's it. This is the first time we've seen David in relationship with his children. And the picture that comes into focus is of a father who is unwilling to interfere with his son's pleasures. Just as we saw in chapter 11, David was asleep as a king on the battlefield. And now we see that he is asleep as both a king and a father at home. But of course, the elephant in the room here as well is David's own taking of a woman who was not his to take. Just like David's abuse of Bathsheba and murder of Uriah, this offense has occurred in the royal family, the very family who was tasked with upholding the law of God in Israel. How could David bring the rule of law against his son when there were so many similarities to his own sin? But we see in verse 20, there's someone who seems to turn up at just the right moment, who immediately seems to know what's gone wrong. Tamar's brother Absalom, he's mentioned first back in verse 1. He asks, has your brother Amnon been with you? Now, the fact that Absalom has this information, it may show that Amnon's desire could have been known in the palace, but that no one's done anything to protect Tamar from her fate. And if this is the case, well, David's involvement is all the more devastating. It appears as though there is a closeness between Absalom and Tamar. In verse 20, Absalom acts with compassion and takes Tamar into his house. Later, we find out that he will name his daughter after her. And in verse 22, he hated Amnon because that he had disgraced his sister Tamar. But Absalom's words, be quiet now, amount to urging her not to make the matter public 
at this present time. Do not take this thing to heart, he says in verse 20. Perhaps this is because he plans to deal with it on her behalf. Or perhaps even Absalom recognises in his own selfishness that Amnon is before him in the line of succession as the heir. And this could be an excuse and a way to remove Amnon so that Absalom is the heir to the kingdom. The narrator doesn't tell us, but the following chapters of 2 Samuel hint at it. It could have been a bit of both. But Tamar's weeping is the last we hear from her. For Absalom sadly does what those in the circle of a raped woman often do, whether they're friend or family. He hushes her. Sadly, sexual violence from a friend or an acquaintance or a lover is as common today as it was in the past. According to the ABS, 87% of women who were sexually assaulted knew their perpetrator. One person who's experienced it describes the aftermath like this. For me, to be raped was to be powerless, helpless, and to be made to feel utterly alone. Well-intentioned friends weren't equipped to be supportive for as long as I needed them. People didn't know what to say, so they said nothing at all. They avoided me, perhaps for fear of saying the wrong thing. Their silence echoed in my mind. I felt that I didn't fit into the world that I knew anymore. I could never be the person that I was before. The person who had never been raped. The person who had held an unknown innocence and likeness. My rapists made themselves powerful and I thought that they stole my name, my very self, my ability to be whole. Friends, if you need any support in this area, or if you have suffered, or you know of someone who has, please be assured that if you chat to any of our staff, we will listen and believe you and not hush you. If you've suffered abuse in this way, please know that you are not to blame and that this behaviour is not okay. While we see an account of this in the Bible, this does not mean that God approves or condones this abuse. Even though Tamar's feelings are ignored by Amnon and the other men in this account, they are noted by God. Perhaps the one encouraging thing here in this account, for women in particular, the one element of light in the dark tunnel is the deep insight given by the narrator into helping us to hear Tamar. One of the commentators, Mary J. Evans, puts it like this. Amnon, the surrounding society, and even David might have thought her feelings irrelevant. But the writer and by implication, God himself most certainly did not. We see Tamar as a person in her own right. We note her generous nature as she cooks for her supposedly sick brother. We feel her incredulity turn to dismay as she realises what his intentions are. And we sense her dismay turn to hopeless desperation as it becomes clear that Amnon has no intention of listening to reason.
We watch her despair turn to inconsolable misery and self-loathing as she's thrown out and becomes indeed a desolate woman, permanently isolated in her brother Absalom's house. We notice the pride with which she once wore her richly ornamented robe as she approached the house. It proclaimed her as one of the most eligible women in the country. And we weep with her as she rips her clothes and covers herself with ashes, her great shame apparent to all. There is no lessening of her misery, but there is nevertheless some comfort in realising that this woman was known. This woman did count. The first half of our chapter began with love and finished with hatred. And we don't have to see long now in Absalom to see how that hatred expresses itself. Because in verse 23, the narrator immediately plunges us two years into the future. Absalom finally takes matters into his own hands, not because he was impatient with the slow turning of the wheels of his father's justice, but rather with the fact that the wheels of his father's justice were not even turning at all. Ironically, though, he follows right into his father's footsteps. From here onwards, Absalom's the main person to notice in the following chapters of 2 Samuel. And notice that even at the beginning of the chapter, Tamar is introduced as Absalom's sister, not as David's daughter. Two years later, when Absalom's... Sorry, verse 23. Two years later, when Absalom's sister... I'll try again. Two years later, when Absalom's sheep shearers were at Baal Hazor, near the border of Ephraim, he invited all the king's sons to come there. Now, sheep shearing was a time of feasting, and it's not entirely clear from the passage whether Absalom has orchestrated this whole episode to take revenge on Amnon, or whether he's just been biding his time and has seen an opportunity come up. There are, however, remarkable similarities between Absalom's plan for revenge and Amnon's original plan, whether deliberately on Absalom's part or not, but certainly noted in the scriptures. See, deceit is used to put the victim into a vulnerable position, this time Amnon. David, again, is involved, this time ensuring that Amnon Amnon is led into the trap. And And like with David's sins, those serving Absalom are used to orchestrate his crimes. Absalom plans in verse 28 that Amnon gets drunk and he orders his men to strike him. Now, Absalom's servants apparently balked at their order to commit murder, fair enough. But Absalom encourages them not to be afraid to be strong, just like his father had encouraged his servant Joab of the same thing when he had Uriah killed. See, like David before him, Absalom now gives the order for murder. And so the words of the prophet Nathan are fulfilled. The sword will never depart from your house. Like father, like son, David's sins of sexual abuse and murder have characterized the lives and now deaths of his sons. The initial report that King David receives of the tragic 
incident was woefully inaccurate. Um, David is told in verse 30 that all of the king's sons had died at the hands of Absalom and that not one of them is left. But anyway, the king's reaction in verse 31 to this horrifying report was to tear his clothes, this classic expression of grief and distress. And it parallels that of his own daughter, Tamar. But we heard nothing of David doing that after that incident. As David grieves, surely those words that Nathan spoke in 1210 about a sword of judgment never departing from his house, well, they must surely have come flooding back to David. This section resounds with the word dead, just as it did in 2 Samuel 12, 18 to 19, when the child of David and Bathsheba died because of David's sin. You'll see it on the screen there. Died, dead, 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 dead. Six times in two verses. And now again in this later part of our passage, death is again the word which saturates the end of this chapter. See, counting Uriah, three deaths have now been the consequence of adultery and rape. Not counting Uriah, David's own fourfold judgment against himself has taken two of his sons, and another two will die at a later time. The entire episode you'll see in your Bible ends with the word death. The divine punishment for the sins of the father have played out in the father's own likeness at the murderous orders of his son. Friends, this whole account reveals the tragedy that the sins of David have set the pattern for the behaviour and relationships in his family and the people of God. Like father, like son. David has failed in his role as a king and as a father and the implications are disastrous. A daughter violated, another son dead, a third in exile. And over the next few chapters as we read through 2 Samuel, we'll see a continued unravelling of David's kingship and family. But there's a few final implications that I want to draw out for us, and I think they're really important. The first is that divine justice is satisfied even when human justice fails. See, Nathan's prophecies against David are being fulfilled. God's word is being fulfilled. The sword has not departed from David's house, and out of his own household, God has brought disaster upon him. Now, David has failed to bring either of his two sons to justice, but this failure of human justice, even by God's appointed king, does not impede divine justice. But the second thing we see is that divine justice can be painful when God allows the children to repeat the sins of the parents. David's crimes of sexual sin and murder are repeated in Amnon's and Absalom's sins. God has judged David by allowing his sin to be punished in the following generation. 
David's sin has planted the seeds for what will subsequently happen in his family. But God uses the sins of David's sons to discipline David. This is particularly painful for David as he watches the destruction of his own family and, for his, and it's particularly painful for his children as they suffer, especially for Tamar, whose life has been ruined by her father's and her brother's sins. See, human sin typically brings with it collateral damage. Innocent people suffer because of the evil actions of others. God has used this as discipline, yes. But at every step, we also see that Amnon and Absalom are acting according to their own sin, and they are fully responsible for their own actions. Now, friends, this kind of discipline can be particularly painful when we notice ourselves repeating things that we wish our parents didn't do, things that we swore we wouldn't repeat, and yet we allow our sinful nature to govern us and we walk in the failures of our parents. Sorry. I see this sometimes in the way that I treat my wife Annie and my son Ezra. And I desperately pray that this would change. This should teach us all the more to grieve our sin. And the way that it affects not only us, but those around us, those who come after us. It should teach us to repent of our sin and to live a new life. And I think our third implication helps us to see how that happens. We have been adopted by a new father in heaven. See, in this particularly distressing account, it is easy to feel like things are hopeless, but they are not. There is a son in David's line who is just like his father, and it is the best thing we could ever hope for. See, in John 5.19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. See, friends, Jesus perfectly images his heavenly father, the holy, righteous, and perfect God. And so in Christ, like father, like son, takes on a whole new image. If we are in Christ we must remember that we don't just have earthly fathers or mothers that we take after, but we have a new father in heaven. 1 John 3 says, See what kind of love the father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself 
as he is pure. We are children of God, of our Father in heaven, and so now we can take after him instead. We are not bound by sin, but we become more and more like our brother Christ and like our Father in heaven by the work of his Spirit in us. We're not yet perfected, but we trust Jesus, longing for that day when we will be conformed to his image. And so, friends, walk in a way that you would want to impart to others. Whether you're a father or mother with children, which is not many people here, but a couple, but you might be a spiritual father or mother to people who look up to you, people you disciple. Live in a way that models Christ-likeness to those who look up to you. And it's not all on you, because we have a new father in heaven, but our father still uses us to model what following him looks like. The effects of sin are real, long-lasting, and reach beyond ourselves, but so are the effects of godliness. So walk in the way of our heavenly father, in the footsteps of Jesus, so that this is what we pass on others. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, in this most confronting account, we grieve sin. But Father, even in this account, we see that we are not bound by such sin. Heavenly Father, we see that the sins of the Father become the sins of the sons, and yet, Father, You have adopted us as your children. Your son has perfectly imaged you and has walked in your ways, and now you have brought us in. Please change us and help us to no longer just follow in the sins of our fathers or mothers or those who've come before us, but to be changed into the likeness of Christ so that we might live for him. Heavenly Father, if anyone today amongst us has experienced this kind of uh, abuse or suffering, we do pray for your healing hand, for a knowledge of your goodness and your love. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How wonderful that the perfect, loving, and just Heavenly Father would work to bring many sons to glory, that uh, though we are in many ways liable to repeat the sins of